Welcome to the future of XYZ. I'm your host, Lisa Grelnick, principal and founder of LVG & Co., an independent strategy consultancy based in New York City. Through quick and candid conversations with innovative leaders, we aim to foster new thinking and explore big questions about where we are as a world and where we're going. Welcome to this week's episode of Future of XYZ. I'm so excited to talk today about the future of language uh, with my dear friend, Casper Grothwell. Casper, thanks so much for joining us on Future of XYZ. Oh, I'm really pleased to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Lisa. Um, well, I mean, I couldn't not invite you to talk about this important subject. I mean, you are, after all, the president of Oxford University Press Languages. Um, so I don't actually know what that means, but um, I know I have a passion <laughs> for language and I wanted to talk about the future of language and you seem to have an apropos yeah. expertise having spent more than 25 years at Oxford University Press. Yes, yeah, so um, Oxford Languages is the division of Oxford University Press. Um, we used to be where we published dictionaries um, and it's so interesting, I, you know, for for years now, I introduced myself at a cocktail party or something, and then I say, oh, I, you know, I'm a dictionary publisher, and I would get that look, people would give me that look of like, oh, like you're on hospice care or something, <laughs> like, you know, dictionaries are just, you know, but what's so interesting is, although we don't pick up books off the shelf anymore, and, you know, look for up a word in a dictionary, we use, you know, the, the use case for dictionaries is um, just as strong as it's ever been, and about 20 years ago or so, we started working with technology companies in their infancy to provide some of the language and dictionary type of information that's needed underneath um, the applications and the software that they develop. So whether it's a scroll over and you look up a word or you can click on something and look up, that's where it started with us. And then they started coming to us with more sophisticated language technology needs and natural language processing needs. And We've pivoted over the last 20 years to become a language service and data business that that you know blossomed out of a dictionary publisher. We still publish the OED and things like this, but um, we now work with a lot of big tech and other companies to really um, address a lot of the digital language challenges that we're facing in the world today. Well, it's it's totally fascinating because I give this talk or especially pre-COVID, I used to give this talk on like calculated risk-taking and it was all about like surfing the wave and being ready for anything and agility. And um, it seems very irrelevant now because it's so obvious, but it was really yeah. quite, quite novel before COVID hit. Um, but one of the things that I go through to set up the premise is like, what are the major, let's call them disruptions of human history that have fundamentally shifted the the, the course of, of humankind thereafter? And one of the major ones, of course, is the printing press, right? It was yeah, how sure. information went from a verbal, you know, hand-me-down narrative to something mm -hmm. that could be held and created, obviously, beyond papyrus and, and stone tablets and things like this. So mass media in its in its first thing, I mean that obviously is where you guys kind of started. I mean Oxford University University Press, as part of University of Oxford, has been around for whatever four or five hundred years. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Right, but like, what is what what's coming? I mean, you guys obviously pivoted twenty years ago. You're working with these big tech companies. Like, what is that next disruption in language, if you will, um, or what what is or is it already in front of us? 
I mean, it's a good question. We've got the immediate next steps, which is really about um, kind of universal understanding of language, a, a universal language or um, translation of, of this so that everyone really understands each other in a way that we don't have those barriers anymore. But when you think about a real disruptor that's a paradigm shift, um, I don't know. I mean, you know, in, in, in talking with a lot of tech folks and the like around language issues, I mean, you know, maybe it has to do, you know, Elon Musk and others talk about that, you know, they want the chip in their brain, you know, when it, you know, when it comes down to it, we, the computers that we have as a brain are much more sophisticated and subtle than our AI counterparts, but they lack the firepower. Like we just can't work as fast as, as, as what we've been able to create. And so this blending of our own kind of processes with some mechanical AI is something that is, is I, I worry that actually there is more happening in laboratories around than we actually know. And we're farther along in that process than we think. I mean, I have no insider information, but I do feel like these, I can start to see in how we think about natural language processing, I can see the point at which it's, if not inevitable, it's likely that we would move beyond um, a language as we understand it now. I know that's really conceptual, but I think that, you know, it, it, these things come, you know, that we seems like we wait and wait and wait for decades for them. And then when they happen, it's like a whoosh and then it's here, you know, um, the iPhone came and just changed everything, but we kind of been waiting for a long time. And, you know, I think that um, with language that's going to happen as well. And it's going to be a computational paradigm shift. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I, I I think about, you know, we already know that there are these implants or sensors that can now people who are paralyzed, for instance, and actually don't have motor speech anymore, they can actually now communicate. So this is in its own way, as you say, plus the laboratory, plus like those big tech companies doing whatever they're doing behind closed doors. It is interesting to imagine, um, you know, what's happening, but there is a lot happening in the realm of technology meeting language. And I want to come back to the basics of language in a bit, but like mm -hmm. technology meets language. I mean, you just talked about natural language processing. You talked about AI. I mean, mm -hmm. there is, you know, I think the first painting that was ever created or poem that was written by AI just, you know, got published and people are kind of a little bit up in arms. We don't know how we feel about this. Like, yeah. what's the role of technology properly in, in, in language right now? Well, it's really interesting. I mean, you know, it's facilitating communication in a way that there's definitely a plus there. I think that the the minus that we're worried about is what does it mean when you can when you can't tell if someone is a human or not that you're communicating with or or you know establishing a relationship with? What does a relationship mean if it's if it's some, if it can be simulated in a way that you know is is almost undetectable? Um, uh, and so. You know, I think what's interesting about language um, engineering right now is, you know, the we have gotten to a point where um, AI's comprehension of, you know, these these neural engines are able to understand, uh, learn, understand, and then be able to to regurgitate, I guess, um, in in certain way, um, at at a at a way that is, you know that Turing test, the Turing test, the one where, you know, you kind of, you know, do you know who you're talking to or you're interacting with a robot is getting harder and harder, you know? And, but there are still challenges here where AI falls short. And, you know, 
some of it is, you know, when you think about how multilingual we are as a society uh, and, you know, as a global society, you know, America tends to be pretty monolingual, but, um, you know, you, you go to parts of India where, you know, everyone speaks two, three, four languages and, but they're not necessarily um, kind of strict in I'm speaking this language formally and then I'm moving to this language. They code switch all the time. They're mixing words and English as a, dominant cultural language around the world, you know, it's amazing how you go and you hear languages just being kind of woven into each other. And that's something that can be very difficult for, you know, that's the subtle part that's hard for computers to really understand. And I'm not saying they won't be able to, or that they're not getting good at it, but we're giving them more and more sophisticated Kind of benchmarks to meet in order for certain use cases and um, they are getting better but they are still not there the need for humans in the loop is what you call it where you know humans are helping kind of um, edit and modulate the kind and of learning they need yes and, and educate i mean they're you know humans are teaching these computers through big data sets and what we call corpora of language that these neural engines and these machine uh, engines, they, um, they learn on these and they're getting smarter and smarter. And um, there may come a time where humans in the loop aren't ne isn't necessary, you know, that, that they can extrapolate in a way that um, they move beyond kind of us as teachers. Which is fascinating. I, I want to come to this point that you made though, that you know, English is a dominant language. I mean, that has been like, let's just say over the last 30 years, especially, this has shifted. English became the de facto language of business around the world of capitalism, mm -hmm. frankly spoken, right? It yeah. is now spoken by the next most popular language is, is Mandarin Chinese, mm -hmm. but English is spoken by 230 million more people, um, yeah. right? I mean, it is, it is infiltrated everything to your point. And I, you know, as a French speaker, I think about like the Académie Française, which tries always to kind of control the French language, but you have yeah. Le Weekend, you have all sorts of Le Burger, you know, all sorts of things <laughs> that have become Englishisms or Anglicisms. Yeah, they're loan words. Sure. Exactly. Sure. And this is happening in all sorts of languages, right? Where the English is infiltrating. And you just mentioned it in terms of challenging the AI. Um, I really love this because I think that it's always been two parts, right? Like if you think about words like courgette, you know, or mm -hmm. aubergine, which the Brits sure. use that are direct French references to zucchini or, or, or eggplant in this yeah. case, right? Yeah. So it's always been going back and forth between dominant languages and influence. What's kind of like, what do you see as tr like, is English always going to be dominant? Like, where are we going in terms of language as yeah. Oxford University Press, you know, dic English dictionary publisher? Sure, sure. I mean, what's interesting is both ends of the spectrum are mutating really quickly. And in some ways they like, they balance each other out. The kind of the rise of English as a global language, as you said, it's been it's been amazing um, the way in which English has become this kind of lingua franca that, um, uh, as you say, sort of business and capitalism might have driven that, and culture, you know, cultural um, capital. But Pop culture, ultimately, yeah. yeah. But ultimately, um, you know, there are I think something like two billion people in the world might speak English, but only. 400 million or half a billion 
actually are native speakers. Like most of the speakers, there's far more people who have learned English as a second language than speak it natively. So, you know, but ultimately, English itself is changing. You know, the the it has really become, as it's become a global language, the ways in which it has started to interact with other local languages in areas where you speak it is really fascinating. You look at something like Nigerian English and the, the words that are moving into global English as a result of, you know, Nigerian speaking English and mixing it with other, you know, um, local languages is really fascinating. And that's happening everywhere in the world. And I think that's a really interesting phenomena to watch. And we track, you know, in a way that we're looking at global English all the time and trying to understand um, how words are coming into the language and what the what the what the origins are, how they've how they've been developing, or whether it's a loan word or whether it's a new word that has an influence from another language and you know the like. At the other end of the spectrum, you know, from English, you have translation tools that are becoming more and more sophisticated. And, um, and I think that's really interesting because you're, you're also simultaneously, you're having more and more people speak a lingua franca, but also it's becoming easier and easier to be able to speak your local language and communicate with someone who speaks their local language and neither of you have a language in common. Right. And, you know, again, it's, it, it's gonna take some time, you know, um, if you are have a pen pal, do you want to? Sure, you can go through a universal translator, and it might be a little clunky at times, but it could, you know, can work. Do you want medical information to be passed through that? That's life and death in a surgery room. Absolutely not. So right. you know, so but but it's getting it's getting better and better. And what I think is really interesting is. Um, all languages, though, are not equal, and they never have been. But in the digital space, you know, we we talk about a digital divide um, that's um, class, economic, you know, all kinds of um, socioeconomic factors in there of access, yeah, really, absolutely of access. But language is no different, you know, and 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 language actually is, is uh, language technology is a real piece of that. So you have only twelve, maybe fourteen languages that are really global languages that are that are fully integrated into our digital lives. As we iterate versions of technology and, and new softwares coming on the market and new applications, you know, it's available in those languages. But once you hit like 12 or 14 of those major world languages, you know, the, some of the major European ones, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, English, it starts Indeed. to fall off a cliff. And, and part of it is because there hasn't been development um, and, and there's not digital texts to the, to, for, as a building blocks to learn in those in some languages because they haven't been economically powerful enough languages in the digital space to drive need and demand. And so you have this situation where you've got a you know a hundred you, you, you've got a, over 100 million speakers of a language like Bengali. And um, yeah, I think Bengali has like three or 400 million speakers. And yet you speak, uh, you speak Bangla, you live in a part of a world where you speak Bangla. If, in, in your neighborhood, if you're talking to someone, you talk to them in your own local language. The minute the two of you go home and communicate online in some way through social media or through your services or your, your Facebooks or your WhatsApps, 
chances are you're communicating in a language that is second to both of you, you know, because you don't have all of your applications aren't localized into Bangla. Well, that's happened. That's, you know, and that's a challenge because the subtlety and the richness of your communication in your own native language is something that, you know, it's hard to put a finger on the value of that, but you recognize how well you are able to communicate in a language that you have, that, that is your, that is a primary native, that you're a native speaker of. So, one of the things we're trying to do, and there's a lot of more focus now on what we call these under-resourced languages, languages that have millions of speakers, but the digital ability to be able to live a digital life in that language is limited. And we're spending a lot of time on that now. The big tech companies um, are really now focused a lot on Indian languages, um, and partly because India as a I think there, economy, there's something like 4,000 dialects spoken in India or something crazy. Well, and there's 24, 26 um, uh, official national languages of India. And so they, but part of it is because- 400 languages, not 4,000, because there are yeah, seven, yeah. I think there's 7,117 7, languages in the world that are recognized as spoken today. Yes. Yes, exactly. That, that, that sounds right. And so, you know, India is an example where all of a sudden now, as big tech and other uh, technology wants to really localize more and more to, to grab digital dollars, you know, first in, in these um, in parts of the world that are um, becoming more digitally savvy, they've now taken a real interest in Indian languages and really trying to localize and provide the building blocks. They're the ones who will provide the APIs and the uh, all of the kind of tools that developers can then use in the, uh, to develop open, all the open source to tools for language, languages. Yeah. yeah, but you know, and what's interesting is African languages, um, which are really rich and diverse, are probably half a decade to a decade behind. You know where where the interest in India is again. But also, the, more largely spoken languages as well, right? I mean, historically, well, we have some, a some, lot of la- a lot of languages in the world have still yes. to this day carried forward with an oral history more than a written history. Yes, and some have, but you know, a, but what I think is really challenging is when you've got um, a language that is very vibrant and living. It's got millions of speakers, but it doesn't have a digital level of sophistication and. And that's, it's been in some ways penalized because the economic power of those speakers has not caught the attention of the, of the digital sphere, you know, and, 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 but it is now. And so I'm really, and there are a lot of groups that are really trying to accelerate that so that we create more of those digital building blocks and work with local communities for them to do it themselves, because that's, a, you know, this isn't a colonial um, exercise. And um, so that people have the ability to live full, rich digital lives in their native language. You know, that I, it feels like that should be one of those universal rights that we're trying to really um, develop for people. Well, I think it's super powerful because for that very, you, you said two things that tied to that for me. One is there is nothing like the nuance of, of communicating in the same language with the same level of command over that language, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and you, if you speak another language, you know that moment when you learn to communicate and express yourself, whether that's getting angry or saying something you know, sensual or whatever it is, there's a moment or a business presentation where you're like, oh, I, I, I got that, right? And, and you're right that like the, the computer right now doesn't, it misses some of that nuance, but it's really rich that there are, as I did the research for this call, there are 7,117 languages state, but 90% of those apparently 
are spoken by a hundred thousand people or less. So mm-hmm. to your point, you know, some of these are the most marginalized of people and populations who don't have access. So the fact that we can empower them with tools and not as a colonial invasion of like, well, this is how you're going to do it, but allowing the digital life to come to the fore seems very relevant. Um, I'm curious. It's, I mean, worth, it's worth noting, though, a lot of those people who speak those languages also speak a language that, you know, course. it might be that, you know, it's a Native American language and they speak English, but they also are trying to keep a tribal language alive. There's a lot of languages like that or that have, you know, all, that, that have relevance and um, we're trying to preserve. I think that's a slightly different, you know, language preservation of that sort in the digital age is something where we do have the tools and ability now to be able to, to archive and codify that as, because one of the biggest challenges with uh, endangered languages is that when they become extinct, there is no one who is able to, to then record. And so we lose that language forever. We've got a window now with, with digital tools that allow it to be much easier to capture those before they go. Um, I, what I'm more um, interested in myself is, is where there are large numbers of speakers of a language that includes a whole either um, society or culture, and it feels like there is a a linguistic disadvantage that they have because there's not the level of richness to be able to communicate in that language Mm. as there are in some of the major world languages. And that's something I think we can, we have a responsibility to address and we can, we've got, we've, we've got the ability to do it. And, yeah. you know, I'd like to make sure that we do it not just based on, well, what's the cost benefit ratio of, of timing, because that's when we can get something out of a certain community. So now we're going to start focusing on allowing them to communicate in their own language. That feels like a really bad scenario to be in. Um, so I'm looking at time where this is a conversation as someone who's always said that her number one genie wish would be to speak every language. And I would include code, computer code of every kind in that these days, but I really would, that would be like for all the reasons that we've named. Um, so I'm going to put the last question to you, Casper, as a personal one, what is your favorite language and, or what is your favorite word in the English dictionary? Oh my gosh. Okay. So those are both really difficult questions. The um, favorite language, I don't really have a favorite language, but I did um, uh, study um, hieroglyphics for a couple of years because I was interested in learning Coptic and Coptic is a hieroglyphic grammar, like in a modified Greek alphabet. And so um, uh, I had to study hieroglyphics for a few years, and I have to say, just there's a beauty in that uh, language and the grammatical structure of that language that I um, have a soft spot for. So that's a little nerdy, probably way nerdy. I'm like, than I'm I like, oh my on. god, I just learned something totally new about you. I'm so excited. <laughs> um, in terms of my favorite word in English, it changes all the time. I'm one of those people who like my love of language manifests in that my favorite word is the word that you've put in front of me most recently that just excites me. So my favorite word changes almost every day, but um, I do um, I do love, and just as a shameless plug, there's an OED word of the day that people can subscribe to. Oxford English Dictionary. The Oxford English Dictionary. And it's interesting because not, it's, it's, um, 
it's rare and strange words sometimes. Um, but what I like about it is it really goes into, if you want to dig deep, it provides the origin of that word and the early antedatings of when it was first used and came into the language. And this is the etymology of the word? The etymology of the words are, are there. And so it's really interesting. So I encourage people, if you are a wordsmith or a bibliophile, um, subscribe to the word of the day at the Oxford English Dictionary. I love that. Um, Casper, thank you so much for joining us on Future of XYZ to talk about the future of language. My God, it's, there's, there's lots there. Oh, it was really fun, Lisa. Thanks for having me. And everyone watching or listening, if you don't already subscribe to Future of XYZ, make sure you do so. You can do it at YouTube or anywhere you get your favorite podcast. You can follow Future of XYZ on Instagram, and we are booking guests for 2023, which seems crazy, um, but make sure you visit future-of.xyz to nominate yourself or someone you know, or just let us know uh, what topics you want to hear about next year. Thanks again, Casper. We'll talk more about hieroglyphics soon. Thanks for listening to the Future of XYZ. If you like what you've been hearing, please follow Lisa Grelnick on LinkedIn. Visit future-of.xyz or subscribe to the Future of XYZ podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts.